Hi, and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists of the regenerative movement, people who are committed to a planetary purpose. My name is Julian Guderlei, and in today's episode, I'm hosting an interview with Dr. Richard Madison. He is the CEO of TrueCost, part of S&P Global. TrueCost assesses and prices risks relating to climate change, natural resource constraints, and broader ESG factors, enabling companies and financial institutions to understand exposure to ESG factors, inform resilience, and identify the transformative solutions of tomorrow. Richard is an expert in sustainable finance, and over the last 16 years, he has advised various UN bodies, governments, financial institutions, companies, and NGOs on how to integrate climate change and natural capital analysis into their decision-making. I'm really excited for this conversation with these words. Welcome, Richard. Great. Pleasure to be here. Really good to, to meet you. Yeah. I'm, let, let's start right off the bat. And I, I want to ask you, what do you know, because you guys are data experts, what do you know is most required in this world right now at, at the brink of the new decade, 2020, going into you know, in, into the decade where we kind of have to deal with climate change once, once and for all, for real. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we are in the um, decade of action right now. Uh, the 2020s, the decade of action. Uh, and, you know, one thing's for sure is, you know, we have, we actually have agreement on a, a set of global goals. Um, and what we need to do is, is one of the greatest challenges we have actually is, um, really taking um, global goals, which, which actually define the kind of outcomes that we as a society wish to achieve. These are actually been um, approved by pretty much every government on the planet. And take a look at those global goals. And there may be goals on climate change, but there may also be goal, goals about poverty and um, oceans and various other goals. Um, and look at how those goals can actually be applied in the context of business, investors, and other aspects of our global economy that actually drive growth. Um, the global uh, goals and the sustainable development goals mm -hmm. present a huge opportunity. It's a huge economic opportunity. It's, it's an opportunity for jobs of a different nature, for a, a cleaner world, for a more equitable world. Um, but it's also a growth opportunity for companies. Um, and so, you know, we're in an era of stakeholder capitalism. And I, I really do think that um, our challenge for, for this decade is thinking about the context of societal goals um, and how do we put that context um, in the mindset of CEOs uh, globally and how do we drive growth in a more sustainable way in alignment with those societal outcomes and objectives that we all wish to achieve. Yeah, that's that's really eloquently put. I think if we look at the SDGs, only only like thirteen is like really like climate action, right? But but everything is so interconnected that of course they they rel relate like largely. I mean, there's 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 lots in there that I think um, makes sense even isolated. But ultimately, I see it very similarly. There's an interconnected field of opportunities. The interesting thing having you on this call is that you know you. And true costs, you map out some of those opportunities from a data perspective. And so I want to know a little bit more about that because I think rarely do I have the chance to speak with someone who has all the, the data background to it to realize, well, in fact, we're really talking about economic opportunity. Yeah, so, um, you know, we, we, uh, we founded TrueCost in the year 2000 out of frustration, <laughs> out of frustration that there is a lack of data in the world. 
um, to drive decision making. Um, back then, you had a lot of companies that were, were saying that they were very green, for example. Um, and in fact, when you actually look at uh, the the amount of um, revenue and investment and growth that has been driven from green initiatives, it was very limited. So, so we felt that there was a data gap in markets. And this is super important because in essence, um, without the involvement of capital markets in some of the solutions that we need to drive, we will not get anywhere. Philanthropy will not get us to achieve those goals. Um, if I give you one specific example on climate, if you look at China's climate goals, right? So China is the world's largest controlled economy. Um, you have, you know, the central yeah, government of China is, is, is able to essentially dictate policy. Um, very unusual situation in the world. Now, um, if you take a look at China, even for China, when you look at China's climate obligations, only 15% of China's climate obligations can actually be funded by the Chinese government which leaves 85% of China's investments. That That's are a massive statistic. Yeah, outside wow. of China's own uh, government intervention, 85% will have to come from somewhere else. And that is not gonna come from philanthropy. It has to come from capital, the capital market system that we, we live in. Um, and so therefore, when you think about how we need to influence decision-making, we actually need to influence 85% in that context, put in simple terms, of decisions uh, sit in capital markets. And those are the influences that we need to, 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 to really uh, change behavior in the world. Now, um, we wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, we, do, we don't persist with market failure. Market failure is often created by a lack of information, a big information gap. And I'll give you a very simple example. Um, let's take water. You would imagine that um, when you take a look at the price of water, it would be highly correlated with how scarce water is, when in fact the reverse is true. So water is actually most expensive where it is most abundant and least expensive where there is very little water. So some places, for example, in the Middle East where uh, you, know, you have desert-like conditions or desert conditions, um, those places are where water is the cheapest, uh, whereas some places in Scandinavia, for example, where water is highly abundant, those places are where water is most expensive. So we, we would call that market failure in a sense to, to, to reflect scarcity um, in, in that particular situation. So what do we do at TrueCost? Well, basically, first of all, we, we measure the abundance of water. We measure CO2 emissions. We measure air pollution. We measure how land use is changing um, and how ecosystems are being degraded. And we work in collaboration with many others to, to measure all of these different things. And then what we do is we, we um, try and provide information and intelligence that is relevant in the investment decision making with respect to those measurements. So we will say, for example, what is the true price of water? Um, so what is the price of water that would reflect its scarcity, not the price of water that exists today? And the reason why that's important is really because um, it's, it's about um, uh, individual actors in, in markets, in capital markets, being fully aware of the gap between the current uh, way in which markets are operating and the way markets could have to operate in the future should you see 
uh, a global carbon price? Should you see the real uh, impact mm -hmm. of climate change? Should you see uh, water availability suddenly changing at scale across the world? And so with, with all of these different scenarios and potential outcomes, um, markets are very ill-equipped today to understand um, how that could affect pricing, the value of the different assets and companies that they invest in. And as I said, going back to that first statistic, um, really, if 85% of China's climate plans need to be funded by capital markets, those capital market actors need to have the right information in their hands to make the right decision about allocating capital. And that's Absolutely. really what we do. I mean, at, at the very minimum, the right information, right? And then the right incentives and also maybe a, an informed uh, pool of shareholders that is not only looking for capital returns, but for long-term capital returns that make, make sense in a regenerative structure. So let me ask in that context, and this is so fascinating already, when you, when you saw the news about um, uh, BlackRock uh, announcing that their investment strategy is, is, is fully moving this way, like for you working in this industry, is, is that just another element of greenwashing or is that something that they actually maybe possibly even used your information for or is it something where you like, you, you make a, a celebratory jump because you realize now more and more and more investors will need this data to actually make informed decisions? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, they, they made a very basic point, which is, uh, you know, climate risk is financial risk. Um, it's that they're not disconnected. They, they, they are risks that, that are, are going to be manifested uh, in capital markets. And I think, um, you know, we, we would totally welcome um, that, that, that type of announcement. BlackRock and many others have made some um, pretty big commitments, I think, to um, investigating and addressing climate change and other types of uh, risks um, associated with environmental, social and governance issues. Um, I think also one thing to acknowledge would be the, the impact of BlackRock's clients and others' clients. So you have asset management um, companies that are thinking about different ways of allocating capital. They're thinking about how to act on behalf of their clients uh, $7 trillion in the case of um, BlackRock, really thinking through how to, how to uh, you know, th think about how to protect those clients against longer term risks in a sense. Um, but actually what we've also seen is a significant movement um, in their, amongst their client base, in particular when you're looking at sovereign wealth funds and pension funds. Um, we've seen uh, a lot of pension funds and sovereign wealth funds really thinking quite deeply about how they address some of these issues. So on the one hand, you might say, look, um, you don't, you don't, if you're a big pension fund, you don't want to disrupt um, things too much because quite often these pension funds are so large that simply selling one company um, can crash that company, could potentially have wider effects on the value of other companies, um, which may affect um, your ability to pay your beneficiaries um, in retirement, right? So, um, so actually, they find it often a, a little difficult to simply say, let's just ditch a whole bunch of uh, uh, bad companies. Um, having said that, um, I think what these large long-term investors are starting to recognize is there are large long-term risks. So the cost of not addressing those risks often far outweighs the cost of addressing them. And so therefore, it's far better to, to put pressure on the system to address those risks 
um, than to wait for those risks to become manifest over time. Um, because the damage created by things like climate change is actually far greater often than um, the climate policies that we see being discussed around whether we need a carbon tax or some kind of penalties on, on high carbon behavior. Um, and it's the economics of that that aren't often well described. So if I said, listen, um, uh, you know, the, the cost of uh, addressing climate change through some sort of green deal might involve 1% um, increase in your taxes today. Um, but actually the cost of climate change in five to 10 years time will be 5% on, on, your, on your tax. Then you're uh, making it like a no-brainer. 20, 20 years time, it would be 20% on your tax. What would you do? Now, unfortunately, that, that, that math is not often well presented. Um, and I think if it were presented to all of us, you know, in a rational format, then you could see what you need to do. However, a lot of pension funds are starting to understand um, the economics of climate change in precisely that way. So they're, they're looking at the extent to which their ability to provide returns over time and market risk more broadly um, might be severely impacted uh, by climate change. And therefore, they're actually putting pressure on the rest of the system, including the asset management industry, to change its behavior. So as far as I'm concerned, all of this is welcome because really it's all about reducing risk and creating a better world for us all over, over time. And I think the, the, the power of, the, the, of finance is that it can provide the capital to make the changes that are required. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where even in, in an individual's life, when, you know, your ideals or your morals and your, your ethics might be in one place, but the moment it comes back down to the paycheck and your monetary ability, um, you know, we, we, we sometimes choose the choices that are right in front of us based on that economic factor. So, so I think it's personally, I think it's a mix of governments and, and policy kind of uh, moving this way strongly, but but as you said, the financial element is, is, is much more powerful in that, in that sense, right? Yeah. And I think also, just to add to that, I think actually governments are finding it quite difficult. If, if, uh, if our observations are true, governments are finding it quite difficult to act on some of these uh, issues. Because um, if, you, if you say to people, well, we're just going to have to tax you a little bit of money, um, that's unpopular and it might not get you voted in again. Um, if you say, well, we're just going to actually tax companies, um, that's also unpopular <laughs> and you might not get support from companies in your next election campaign. But if you say, actually, we're, we're going to uh, provide um, incentives and think carefully about how, how the financial system is rewarding behavior, um, then actually that, that does change things in a far more subtle but far more fundamental way. Um, so... Uh, I'll give you an example, you know, being, if, if, um, if banks had to disclose uh, a 20-year risk time frame on the financial impact of climate change on their, on their lending today, um, then, then, you know, they might change the way they're lending today. Mm -hmm. um, and because some of the ways in which they're financing aspects of the fossil fuel industry, for example, might become a little less sustainable uh, and, in fact, might end up creating what's known as stranded assets. And, and these are kind of assets that are worth quite a lot of money today that in the future might not be worth any money at all. 
um, because there will be climate policies that will will make those types of activity activities either very unpopular or not possible at all and so um, if banks had to actually disclose the extent to which they were exposed to some of these risks, then I think they would change their behavior. And I say this because actually this is happening today. You have um, 50 plus central banks uh, who are um, the regulators of the banking industry who are actually now stress testing their economies uh, for climate risk, including people like the Bank of England. Uh, and even in the United States, the Fed is now co-chairing uh, a committee, a subcommittee, a task force of uh, what's known as the Basel Committee, um, which again is a group of, of central banks. And, and they'll be looking at um, the extent to which there, there needs to be a, a sort of, if you like, a more significant way of testing um, our economies for uh, climate risks, and in particular how banks and others in the financial system are funding good good things or bad things and so what we may well end up seeing is it could end up actually being cheaper to um, uh, get a green loan and more expensive to to get a brown loan a loan mm -hmm. that finances something that is associated with yeah. climate change oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and in Europe, we're hearing a lot of discussion around that. So, you know, and in fact, in China, it's already the case. So it's already the case in China that if you want to build a wind farm, it's, it's cheaper. It's, it's up to 15% cheaper on your loan to build a wind farm than it is to build a coal-fired power station. And that's the power of intervening and, and thinking about the financial yeah. system is you're not saying to the coal-fired power plant, you can't do that. And you're not saying to the wind farm, here's the tax break directly. Exactly. But what you are saying is that through a clearer um, monitoring of the financial system, you can provide some incentives. So I, I love how, you know, um, literate, I think would be the word literate you are about this entire body of work about, you know, um, how we can use this system that we have built so far to create this pathway into a more sustainable more regenerative like economy and therefore like the the consequences of you know a, a greener world in that sense i think when when we look at you know people's reaction across the planet people i think since years would have wanted to see more action especially from governments and if you don't mind let's let's compare this to you know we're having this conversation on march 11th 2020 to the situation of the coronavirus which you know, I think at this point, we know it has to be taken serious. Infection rates could be really high, even though uh, mortality rate might be ultimately quite low uh, for unless we're talking about, you know, an, an older or already sick kind of um, part of the society. So we have to be really careful as people to, to not spread a virus like this into a pandemic kind of situation. And suddenly we see governments take drastic actions within less than two weeks now. Uh, any public gathering, any if it's soccer or basketball, uh, any, any games are shut down and, you know, people are flying less, people are not going out in the street, people are doing all these like hamster um, purchases. So, so now that fear became very real and because of it, action has happened so fast. How do you think or why do you think this, this is not the case with climate change at large? Because the longer term fears or the longer term perspectives are actually like probably worse, right? Yeah, well, uh, you know, actually, you know, approximately 7 million people die of air pollution every year. 
Um, and so if you compare that to the deaths in coronavirus, um, it's, it's actually a lot more and it's a lot more yeah. fatal. Uh, so, so, so I think it is an interesting question because air pollution is actually created by, you know, burning fossil fuels largely, um, uh, which is also linked to climate change. So addressing air pollution means you're addressing climate change. Uh, and, and so often when people talk about climate change, they say, well, it's a very esoteric topic. It's very long term. It might affect us in 20 years time, but will it? Uh, and does it even exist? And, you know, uh, the records show that in 1920, it was just as hot as it is now. And so you have all these debates about climate change. Um, and disputes of the science and various things. But actually, what, what's kind of somewhat missing is that, um, that it's created a momentum with the coronavirus. Obviously, coronavirus, it's a virus. It's spreading very fast, and it's real. People are dying today. But the reality is, um, with, with fossil fuels, the very same is true. It's, it's mm. growing very fast, um, and it's killing people today. It's just not well understood in those terms. Um, you know, if we're to address climate change and air pollution, we could save millions of lives um, today as well as into the future. And those arguments are not well understood and not well presented. And far more, more many people are dying today of air pollution than they are dying today of the mm -hmm. coronavirus. So um, I, think, I think part of the issue is, is really around public understanding of uh, the consequences of climate change, the consequences of, and the drivers of air pollution and actually how it does affect us and, you know, our children and, um, you know, uh, our, our parents and, 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 you know, the whole of society, really. Um, it's just part of the issue, though, is there's, there's a bit of a less direct connection. So if I have respiratory failure, um, then... You know, it may be caused by air pollution. In fact, doctors would say, look, it's caused by air pollution. It, of course, could be caused by smoking uh, and, and actually, or it just could be caused by the fact that I'm marginally more prone to uh, respiratory failure than others. Um, but if I contract the coronavirus, I could be tested for that. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's, there's you know, direct I relation. found... Yeah, so there's a direct link. And this is also the problem with climate change. So I could say that, um, you know, climate change related events of an unusual nature cost the global economy more than $180 billion, which uh, various insurance companies would 100% agree with. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I can't link an event that happens today to global warming. Um, just because of uh, the nature of our changing weather and uh, you do get one-off mm -hmm. events that may or may not be linked to uh, I, a general trend. I like where, what you're doing there though in the distinction between global warming and climate change and let's say air pollution because this has been coming up in, in, in Green Planet, Blue Planet a, a, a hundred times already is like this, this like global warming and climate change in itself as a narrative really confuse a lot of people and just create a lot of emotional reaction and 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 the and the ability for some people to hide behind it and say oh that's all just you know let's not it's not even real and what is real though what we can measure what's really there is pollution right i mean we see plastic pollution we see air pollution we see the water pollution that's a very factual situation and i think we can somewhat directly relate this to our practices in business and our in our fossil industries fossil fuel industries so so I think, I think in that sense, it's, it's much clearer to people, but, but yet the, the, the drastic action, I think one more thing that is really obvious there is on the coronavirus, um, at least on, 
unless we go into conspiracies, there's no one earning um, money on this, right? On, on fossil fuel industries, this is a, a, a trillion dollar industry that, you know, is, um, is, is part of our economic pride for, for a century or longer now. Yeah, that's, that's exactly true. And it's actually subsidized often by us too. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we're, we're subsidizing the fossil fuel industry, but, you know, there are uh, direct medical links to, uh, you know, burning coal, for example, and air pollution and respiratory failure and deaths. Um, and the World Health Organization has published these studies, you know, uh, annually for a long time. So I, I think, um, and in fact, there are some studies that would say, um, you know, it's interesting what changes policymakers' minds. So there are some studies that would say that in China, for example, um, up until a certain point, um, if you're a policymaker in China, your focus would really very much have been on economic growth. So achieving an 8% GDP growth target. Um, and so therefore, when you have a discussion about uh, solving a problem to do with air pollution, which might cost money, you're in, 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 you know, intrinsically thinking about whether that might affect growth overall by spending more money, right? So, um, so, so that uh, has been a blocker historically. But there came a point at which um, the policymakers in China understood a, a kind of really interesting fact, which is that when you measure the cost of air pollution in China, depending on which province you're in, it could be up to 10% of GDP lost. So whilst you're growing very fast, you're also paying out a huge amount of money in terms of uh, solving chronic respiratory failure, um, but also uh, crop yields in China are lower than in, in, in other parts of the world. You have damage in acidification of waterways uh, and people are dying younger because of air pollution as well. So you have a less productive economy overall. So if you are losing 10% of GDP through that, um, even though you're growing 8% a year, um, what is the cost of addressing air pollution? Well, it could be 1%. So if the cost of addressing air pollution is 1% of GDP, you're therefore gaining 9% of GDP. You could actually grow faster as an economy by fixing air pollution. Mm -hmm. And so some of the economics of really thinking through by solving a problem that actually has a cost to solve it. We could grow faster, create more jobs, have a more equitable and social world and a cleaner planet for us all. Um, that's, that's the kind of um, thinking that I think we need more of. 100%. And this is, this is actually along the line of th thinking how this podcast started about two years ago is this, this idea of what is our Earth vision as a collective? Like, what is our dream for this planet? If we were to zoom out, uh, from one lifetime that we that we embody as the individual as the the, the ego framework right like what what do we want this uh, planet in space to look like feel like and, and and be like and so I think those visions are are largely um, lacking actually still in a global conversation I think there's you know there's some bodies like let's say the United Nations etc that have some form of an idea of that but I, I really appreciate your kind of long term thinking into into the economic spectrum there because I think economically speaking and we don't even have to to make this a negative statement um we just didn't have the desire to think that long term until uh, the recent decades you know like four five six decades ago that, that was no one's actual real desire the desire was to make a country stronger to make people uh, have people have access to water etc and and so i think we, we you know personally i think there's no one to blame necessarily it's just we have to learn with the data that's available a lot faster and so um 
Well, I mean, if you yeah. think about it, like, you, you, uh, you know, an industrial revolution is just that. It's a revolution. It's messy. It's disruptive. It's often nonlinear. And every country, as it develops, somewhat goes through the same process of a revolution. Totally. Um, but in fact, what we need going forward is more of a sustainable evolution. So we need to evolve to a vision rather than revolt and uh, to, to an outcome. And I think you're right. I, th I think that requires a plan and a vision and a goal and a set of goals that we need to achieve. And I think actually that um, one of the themes, um, you know, the World Economic Forum holds its annual meeting in Davos every year. And the theme of this year was uh, um, stakeholder capitalism. It's and I asked, yeah, and, and I asked a, a CEO of, uh, a chairman actually of a, a car manufacturer in Europe, um, what that meant to, to him and to his company. And, you know, he, he basically said, well, look, you know, we, we need to plan for a more sustainable economy and think about how that affects our stakeholders. And I, I, so I said to him, well, what, what are the two, two most important stakeholders for you? And he said, well, customers and employees. Uh, and he, he kind of very eloquently described um, stakeholder capitalism in the context of those two groups, um, meaning that, you know, if, if they make cars that um, pollute the planet um, in a significant way and also uh, accelerate climate change and our longer term problems, um, then actually uh, that's going to be damaging for the employees. You know, the employees will, will have respiratory problems. Uh, and when people see, start to see some of those links more tangibly, it, with more evidence, more data flowing in the world, that could create some significant problems. And the same for customers. The customers don't want to be driving their kids to school in a car that actually creates more pollution for those children, um, which might affect the children's health. So as we start to see more of these linkages drawn together with more evidence of how these issues are linked um, in a more transparent world, um, then I think you, you will start to see a massive impact on the kinds of choices that people make. Um, and so I think for them, therefore, the transition towards uh, low emission cars or zero emission cars, really meaning cars that don't pollute and don't emit so much CO2, um, that's only going to be good for customers, employees and build brand loyalty and build a better business for them in the long term. So I think there is a, a growing recognition that um, a plan aligned with sustainability is essential for business because without that plan, you don't have customers that are loyal to you and you don't have employees or you're going to struggle to retain and attract talent. Uh, and so, so I think we're really starting to see uh, some, some broader thinking emerging right now amongst um, businesses. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was very palpable. I, I was in, in Davos too this year and had an, a similar conversation with someone from um, a large beverage company in the United States. And it was more about, you know, the marketing uh, opportunities that there, there are now. Um, he was the vice president of marketing. And, you know, sharing those stories about the renewable um, well, not supply chain at this point, but like the way that the, the beverage itself is being produced, et cetera. And like talking about these renewable or sustainable practices as part of the marketing. I think it's, it's great to see this enter kind of the mainstream through, you know, like business practices and even, even marketing stories. 
if we look at like the car manufacturing example is really interesting because you know tesla came out of nowhere about 10 10 ish years ago right um uh, well nowhere in the sense of like that market was already clearly visible but no one claimed it and so the the european um the big players in the european market especially in the german market i think the same thing could, could be said what we said about governments earlier like people expect companies to almost claim this kind of progress this kind of um, innovation much earlier as a logical consequence because they're planning for the future not just because uh, there's a reactionary um, chain of events now that we see oh this this pollution piece is really dire right mm -hmm. um, is that something that that you're noticing as well that companies are actually like really getting like like much clearer committed to this direction, maybe even a younger generation into leadership that is the supporting them? Yeah, so I, I, think, I think we're seeing um, so, some, first of all, an interesting progression of people who, that work in sustainability through to people that actually lead companies. And we've seen that in organizations like um, uh, Yorkshire Water in the United Kingdom and also H&M um, and various other organizations where we, we would expect to see that progression. And, and um, I think I think having you know clear leadership on sustainability is beneficial um, because actually what you're doing is you're really um, if you do it well you're tapping into the needs and desires of of a generation for whom these issues are increasingly important and, and totally. this is a generation that um, will drive your business growth uh, in the next two decades so actually any business leader right now that is thinking about growth in the next two decades should not just be thinking about geographical splits between how do we make money in China and and other countries in other parts of the world um, versus you know low growth in Europe and, and small growth in US um, that was the historical dynamic I think um, we now need to be thinking about how do I make money in an era where there is an increasingly um, transparent world uh, where information is being put into the hands of the consumer in a, a much more ready readily available and digestible fashion where um where uh your facts can be checked instantaneously uh we, we already can for example monitor the co2 emissions of factories using satellites independent of what companies tell you we already can uh tell you the extent to which uh, a company's supply chain is driving deforestation uh through the products that it makes uh, we can already tell you whether your investment portfolio is uh creating droughts in various parts of the world um, and so, so there are um, an increasing uh, set of uh, information uh, flows that are happening independent of marketeers and companies, for example. Um, and so in an era of greater transparency, you really simply need the right strategy and to be more transparent <laughs> um, on, on exactly what you're doing to address some of these issues um, and, and have full traceability. I, th I think with the advent of um, uh, technologies like blockchain um, with greater transparency around how we measure some of the positive and negative impacts of business activities we're going to see a far greater transparency associated with the products that we consume on a daily basis um, with with how our money is invested on our behalf if we invest into a pension fund um, how our governments are investing uh, mm -hmm. on our behalf um, and you know which companies are actually creating the problems in the world versus other companies and so I think I think transparency will drive a significant change in behavior, and I think you know the 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 more um, you know forward thinking uh, companies and CEOs therefore are developing plans 
that are that are both in recognition of that, but also in recognition of the fact that um, you know people will buy products in preference over other products that are more responsibly sustainably made, and and we're seeing evidence of that. Um, in fact, if you look at the fastest growth aspect of many uh, consumer goods companies, they are actually now tracking the difference between sustainable products and non-sustainable products. Mm. And the sustainable products are growing at almost double the growth rate of the non-sustainable products. Wow. That's a very hopeful statistic, even though sometimes they might be uh, higher in price point. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Richard, this was this was a very very informative uh, interview. I'm, I'm so I'm so glad you're making the time. I have one more question for you. Um, and you you know, in the beginning of the conversation, you said this is a decade of action. And so, um, assuming this is an, a, a decade of action, you know, I call it the golden decade where we can make a lot of these things come true. Um, what's your dream for for the Earth? What's your dream for for this planet and, and our species and how we're evolving? I mean, my dream is that we address some of these major problems that we have. Um, the, these major problems, and, and, and really, this is not only an ethical problem, it's an economic problem. Um, I, you know, I, I, I want, um, what, what I fear is that uh, the change that we're facing is uh, incrementally, is incremental and worsening. And so, uh, you know, if you go back a generation, um, it's possible that, 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 you know, a generation before me had a better quality of life. And my fear is that um, over time, because these changes are somewhat incremental, we would just have a lessening of quality of life, a lessening of um, the ability of a child to walk in a forest because there aren't any forests. Um, uh, uh, you know, just a general degradation of the quality of human life and danger to human life over time. So, so my hope really is the reverse, is that we start to value what is important um, and we start to integrate that into our decision-making um, to, uh, if you like, enhance, preserve and protect and regenerate, um, you know, the, the aspects of human life that are important. Um, and I think that we can use a multiple set of levers, it's governments, it's um, consumer uh, change and, and action. Um, it's also changing in, in the way in which, um, you know, the banks and um, fund managers and various others uh, behave and act. Because, you know, if, if I speak to no matter who it is, in whatever industry, um, they usually tell me that they are worried about some of these things when they go home. They get lectured by their kids when they go home. They recycle when they go home. They just don't necessarily know what to do when they go to work. And I think um, that's, that's the challenge that we need to address is we all go to work. And so what do we need to do when we go to work to make sure that in this coming decade, we don't end up in this decade with another half of the world's forest depleted? Um, another 7 million more people dying of air pollution. Um, yeah. and, and that's, that's, that's the connectivity that we need to address. So I think in practical terms, um, we need better information that feeds into the hands of policymakers, into the hands of the public, uh, into the hands of decision makers in, in big financial industry and, and big companies. Um, and I think we need better tracking. So I really want to uh, focus our efforts on making sure that we look at what sustainability means in the context of the sustainable development goals 
and we translate those goals into goals for companies, goals for um, investors, big investors around the world, goals for how we make products, um, so that actually we, we end up in a situation where we can actually say, I have just bought uh, a notebook and I know that this notebook is actually creating some benefit to the planet in its production. Mm -hmm. So in other words, um, we can measure that, we can be clear about that, we, and we can communicate that to drive change in the world. And, and that's, that's my hope for this, this coming decade. Beautiful. Thank you so much for, for your answer. Thank you also for your time. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And that's that. Another episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. I hope you truly enjoyed this one and received some insights, knowledge, and a form of learning that you can directly apply to your life, into your relationships, or maybe even into your business and the way you show up for the world. Because this is a movement and we're all part of it and we're in this together. We're here to create a world of a triple bottom line where you win, I win, and the entire planet wins. We're raising consciousness together and you know that. That's why you're listening. That's why I love you. So make sure to share the love. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Invite a friend to listen to a Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. And if you have an idea who else you'd like me to interview, make sure you reach out and send me a suggestion. Definitely check out greenplanet-blueplanet.com, the website to the podcast. I've created a lot of different offers for you, free content, free meditations for you to amplify your connection to self, the state of social impact in the world, and for you to connect and listen to who you could support of the people that I actually interview because their missions are ongoing and a lot of them need more collaboration. And after more than 100 episodes now, with some of the world's leading social impact experts, I have synthesized my most inspired learnings and takeaways to create coaching and mentorship programs for you and the people around you. Let me share with you about planetary purpose coaching and mentorship experiences. If you're in a space in your life where you're ready to level up to amplify who you are, what's coming through you and what you're doing to give your gift to the world, then I would love to hear from you and I'd love for you to apply to one of my private mentorships or group mentorships. Last but not least, there's a few different group experiences I host both in person and online. All of them are quantum learning environments and I'm happy to tell you more. So simply inform yourself and stay connected because whatever resonates with you, I'm here to support you and bring out more purpose into the world. And with that being said, wherever you are in the world, make sure to be you, show up all the way, be all in, connect with someone today, make them smile, have yourself a stellar day. Lots of love to you and until soon. Mm -hmm.